0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Fellowship Greenville Student Ministry Podcast. We're continuing our series, Jesus Is, but also by looking at the concepts of Jesus being fully human and fully God, and how does that impact our faith today in 2023. Follow along, and we hope you enjoy this message. Amen. Grab a seat. Man, it's so good to see you all here tonight. So encouraged, full of joy to see my people worshiping Jesus and here to learn and see what this... Scriptures have to say, listen, if you're new, if you don't know me, if we've never met, my name's Matt. I'm the youth pastor here at Fellowship. I want you guys to know that we love you and we believe that you have a place to belong, not just here in this building, but in the family of God. We believe that and we believe that God feels that way about you as well. You're loved and you have a place to belong. And if you're in here tonight and you're on a journey, which I think we can admit we all are to some degree, and you don't know where you're at in your faith, you don't know if you're really into this thing, you don't know if you really believe in Jesus, you're trying to figure it out, you've got some questions, you've got some doubts, or maybe you're all in, you're full in, no matter where you're at on the spectrum, it doesn't matter, we just want you to know we're thankful you're here, we're thankful that you're seeking truth with us, you're loved here and you belong here. Now, you'll come to figure out pretty soon that we believe that Jesus is the source of life and hope in this world, uh, and that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. We believe that that's what he offers, but we're thankful you're here no matter where you're at on the journey. This semester, we have kicked off a series called Jesus Is But Also, and every week we've kind of been going down the road of exploring some maybe seemingly uh, contradictory or paradoxical pairings In other words, how do these things work together? It is our tendency, I think, as humans to gravitate towards the extremes of one side because that's where it's comfortable. If you imagine a seesaw standing on the edge, the side of one end of that seesaw, does not require that much skill to balance. It doesn't require that much skill to respond or react to what's about to happen. And so we tend to gravitate toward the ends. We tend to go to the extremes. But this whole series is about not dismissing the truth of Jesus that we may have grown up hearing or have absorbed over the years. Not dismissing that for the sake of the other, but actually bringing us into the reality that Jesus is that, but he's also this. Let's not go to the extremes and let's actually hover together in the tension in the center of this seesaw, which requires tremendous balance and embracing mystery and embracing some paradoxical pairing so the first couple weeks we have explored that Jesus is free that's true but also he is costly that's also true how does that make sense if you missed it go check out our podcast our YouTube channel you can catch up last week we explored the concept that Jesus is love and it doesn't matter what you've done in this life it doesn't matter how many sins you've committed Jesus is is love. It's not just something he offers. It's who he is by nature. He is love, but he's also holy, and Jesus judges sin. How do those two things reconcile together in the person of Jesus? If you missed it, go check out our podcast or our YouTube channel. Tonight, we're continuing our series, Jesus Is But Also, and we're going to explore another set of seemingly paradoxical pairings. Tonight, we are going down the road of Jesus is human, but also God. Jesus is human, but also God. Now, I think uh, in, in some of the, the weeks that I have planned, this one might be a little bit underestimated in terms of its value. Like, at first glance, you might see that and be like, oh, man, like, how does that really impact me? How does that, how does that matter to me? Well, believe it or not, this has huge, significant implications if we understand the truths of what the Bible has to teach about these pairings, that Jesus is human, but he's also God. Somewhere in your brain, you probably have categories of both. Yeah, like I, I, I think Jesus was a man. Sure, he lived on earth. And maybe for you, it's easier to embrace the human thing. And when you picture Jesus, maybe you picture him in his humanity. For others of you, maybe you think of Jesus as divine. And your knee-jerk reaction when you think of Jesus is just to go to his divinity. He's God. He deals with our sins. Yeah, Jesus is God. But hear me. Jesus is not kind of God and kind of man. He is fully God and fully human. Like we tend to think about this as like Jesus was some hybrid 50-50, like he's 50% human and 50% God and that made up the person of who he was. No, that's not true. It's also not true that Jesus was God, and then when he left heaven to come to earth, he became human, and he ceased to be God, and while he was on earth, he was human, but then when he went back to heaven, he became God again. That's not true either. Hear me. Jesus is fully, 100% divine. Jesus is God, and Jesus is 100% human. Jesus is flesh. 100% of both in one vessel, in one being. He did not cease to be God when he was on earth, but he became 100% human. There's huge implications to understanding what this means for our faith and how does this actually impact us in 2023 as a teenager in high school? Why does this matter? It matters. It matters way more than you think. In fact, the early church, this was like one of the biggest things for them, is, is making sure people understood this, that Jesus is God and human. He's both and, not one or the other, not temporary this. and Jesus is both and, and right now in heaven, Jesus is God and man, seated on the throne in his resurrected body. There's huge implications to this. I. Uh, a, f- a few weeks ago, I was scrolling through. I was on Instagram. I was on IG. I don't know if, yeah, your youth pastor is on the gram. Pray for my soul. I was scrolling through some reels. I didn't know if that'd get another gasp. Yeah, yeah. I'm not just about the posts and the stories, I'm on the reels, okay? I was scrolling through some reels, those things are addictive, I love them. I love Man, there's some that make me laugh. In fact, I probably spend more time uh, sending my wife, my friends, and my team, my coworkers, reels that I find funny that they don't uh, than, in- <laughs> than any other side hobby. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I send a bunch of reels out. Anyway, I was scrolling through, you know how addictive it can be. I was on there for, I don't know, it was probably like hour number five, and I came across this one reel. And, um, and it intrigued me because it was like a street preacher, right? I don't know if you guys have ever been downtown Greenville and you got the, the, the people on the street and they're just like proclaiming the gospel. Sometimes they got like the megaphone bullhorn. And I was like, dog, I, I have no idea what you're saying, man, this is so loud and I'm one foot away. But I was intrigued because even if I don't think that's you know, the best strategy to approach people, I always admire their courage. It takes a lot of courage to stand on the street and proclaim the gospel. So I paused on the video. I was like, oh, what's this one about? And this guy, this gentleman, I think he was um, kind of in like this square, this um, courtyard in a city, and he had a microphone set up and a a speaker system, and he was amplified, and he was taking questions. Like people could just walk up and ask this guy any question they've ever had about God, about the Bible, about Christianity, about spiritualism, about whatever. And he was approaching it from the perspective of uh, a Christian. And I was intrigued by the video. So, of course, I watched it. And this young, this young woman walks up, I don't know, in her 20s or so, and she comes up to the microphone and she asks him a question that I think we've all wondered at one time or another. She leans into the microphone and she says, hey, what's required to get into heaven when I die? It was her question. Maybe some of you guys have seen this this reel floating around. She says, what's required to get into heaven? This street preacher guy leans into his microphone, and he says, perfection. Of course, the young young woman was kind of like, I guess a little confused and a little offended, maybe a mix of both. She said, perfection? Street preacher says, yeah, perfection. She goes, okay. Is there anyone in heaven right now? Street preacher leans into his microphone. He says, Yes. The woman kind of gets flustered. She goes, has anybody ever been perfect? Street preacher leans into his mic, says, no. She goes, okay, so I just want to make sure I'm hearing you right. People are not perfect. Street preacher goes, yeah. And what's required to get into heaven is perfection. That's correct. And you're telling me there's people in heaven right now. That's correct. But they were not perfect. Correct. This young woman's flustered, she's annoyed, she's confused. You know, it sounds idiotic. Like, it sounds like this man is just contradicting himself left and right. Now, if you're steeped in the Bible or you know kind of the bottom line of Christianity, you know actually he's setting up like this perfect slam dunk. Homie's running and he just jumped from the free throw line and he's soaring through the air with tongue out right now. He's about to slam dunk the good news. Because her next question is how is that possible? And, of course, that leads him into the gospel to talk about Jesus and what he accomplished and not what we accomplish. But her question resonated with me because I think a lot of us have asked that question. What's really required when I die to get into heaven? I don't want to go to hell. That seems like the bad place. Between the two, I'd wanna to go to heaven, but like I don't, I'm not positive I got it all figured out here on earth. Like what what really the bottom line, what's required? That's what she asks him in his response: perfection. Has anyone ever been perfect? No. But that's what's required? Yes. Are there people in heaven right now? Yes. Were they perfect? No. How does this make sense? Now I, I wanna let you know that in this series we've been exploring, I think, some some hard to talk about concepts but you know <clears throat> i'm under the conviction that this is a generation that is hungry for what the bible actually has to say that's hungry to process some hard truths that this is a generation who values authenticity and is curious about what's actually in the scriptures so let's talk about it and i think there's no better place tonight to start than than a teaching of jesus himself And I believe this to be, you can quote me on this, I believe this to be the hardest teaching that Jesus ever delivered. And he delivered some hard ones. And I think this is the hardest teaching to understand, to swallow, to to process, to make sense of, to reconcile. But Jesus taught it. And we oftentimes overlook it. Some of you may not even realize that it's in the Bible, but he taught it. And it's smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon, and they call it that because he preached a sermon on top of a mountain. It was a very creative name for it. Oh, he's standing on a mountain. What should we call it? Sermon on the Mount. I know, it's very clever. My sermons are called Sermon from the Stage. But Jesus is preaching his most famous sermon right in the middle. He says this, let's take a look. It's one verse, Matthew chapter five, verse 48. I have it on the screens. Go there in your Bibles, see it for yourself. Jesus says this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus says that, Matthew chapter five, verse 48. Drops the bomb. You therefore must be perfect. What? Did you know Jesus taught that? Because if you've grown up in, in kind of like Christian circles, if you've grown up in the South and you've come to church every Sunday, and, but you haven't really ever read the Bible for yourself, you've probably heard things like, hey, Jesus doesn't expect you to be perfect. He just expects you to make progress. Maybe you've heard something like that. I've seen things like that floating around, little hand-painted stencils you can hang in your wall. You can probably go to Hobby Lobby right now and get three of them, okay? And to some degree, I understand that perspective. I understand that conclusion, and It's accurate. But here's the tension. Jesus is saying not, hey, I want you to make progress. He's not saying, hey, give it your, you know, try hard. Give it your best shot. I'll fill in the blanks. Jesus is looking at his followers and saying, you therefore be perfect as God in heaven is perfect. If that doesn't make you wrestle within your own soul and heart right now, then either you already have this figured out or you just don't care. Or you're asleep, which a few of you are. I see you, I see you. Heads tilted about. Oh, somebody just set up. I saw it, but I won't call it out. (laughs) Jesus says, you be perfect. How do you reconcile that? Woman on the street asks the preacher, what's required to get into heaven? He says, perfection. She says, but nobody's perfect. He says, that's correct. Jesus giving his most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, the ways of living, if you call Jesus Lord, I surrender to you, Jesus is giving this sermon, he says, all right, well, this is what it's all about, to live for me, looks like this. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the sermon on the mount, Jesus delivers, these are the ways of living, if you are going to follow me, and right in the middle, he says, perfection. You ever notice this verse before? doesn't it just make you pause and like, what? Just like the young woman asking the street preacher, how is that, did we know Jesus asks this, requires this? Is it confusing to you? Is it surprising? Have you already seen this? Now listen, it's really, really easy to start running down roads of extremism right now. So let me pause some people in the room. If you're running down the road of like, oh, perfectionism, I gotta start performing, I gotta do better, I gotta try harder, let me pause you. I don't think Jesus is advocating that. If you're starting to to run down the guilt trip roads of like condemning yourself, oh I'm the worst person alive, oh man, I'm I'm terrible, what a wretched person I am, like, let me pause you. Before we start going to the extreme and, and fall into some unhealthy applications of what Jesus is teaching. Let's wrestle with it. Jesus says, you be perfect as God is perfect. Does that land on you in a way that you're like, okay, I don't know what to do with that. I didn't really realize Jesus said that, but it's right there. And what do we do with that? I think maybe a great place to start to answer this question is actually in the beginning of the Bible. Now, Jesus is human, but he's also God. That's what we're focusing on tonight, and, and you could go so many different routes with that. The route that I want to go is simply big picture view. Tonight, I want to connect the dots of what the entire scriptures are about through the lens of Jesus is human and God, all right? So this is big picture sermon. We're going to be all over the place tonight, but we're going to try to connect dots between Old Testament and New Testament, between this concept and this concept. You with me? five of you. You with me? Yes. All right. Quiet church is typically a dead church. All right? So so let's let's engage here. This is a big picture sermon. Instead of focusing in on like one passage, I want to connect dots of what the Bible has to teach and how Jesus as human and God really reconciles things and how this expectation actually finds harmony within who Jesus is and who we are. So I want to start in the beginning. If you know the story of our Bible, it begins in Genesis chapter 1. The first two chapters are actually a really beautiful story. God is creating the world, and he's creating planets, and he's creating all these beautiful animals, and bushes, and flowers, and all these picturesque scenes, and he's calling everything good, 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 like Dude's just rolling out goods. He creates this good world where his creation is in harmony with God, with each other, with themselves, and with creation itself. Now, a lot of people ask the question, why did God create evil? That is not what tonight's sermon is about, so I'm not even going to try to answer that. But a lot of people ask that question, and the only thing I'll say towards it is, I don't think God created evil. I think he created a world where there was potential to commit evil. But it was still our decision. It was the decision of his creation to do it or not. So he creates this good world that seemingly has the potential to rebel against their creator. Chapters 1 and 2 look look and sound so beautiful. But all of a sudden in chapter 3 we encounter a talking snake. And I know that we're so familiar with the Bible, and we know this to be Satan, and so you're kind of familiar with understanding this as Satan, but we don't know that it's Satan until biblical authors later reflect on this account. In Genesis, it's simply a talking snake. And I don't know if you've ever been hanging outside and seen a snake, and that snake all of a sudden looks up at you and says, Yo, you hungry? But if that happens, you would be like, Yo, dog, this is strange. And this is a strange story. Adam and Eve are in this good world, and along comes a talking snake. Now, to understand the kind of the concept, I have here a clear glass dinner plate, okay? So this is Adam and Eve when they are created by God. It's clear. It's not scratched. It's not chipped. It's not broken. It's clean. God has created a good world and placed man and woman in this world and, and, and allowed them to share with his rule and reign and, and, and given them freedom to live in this paradise with him forever. They were created in this, this, this state of perfect harmony with God. They were created without the presence of sin committed in their beings So if that's how God has created us, if this is how he's created us, and then eventually we rebelled because we believed a talking snake, but if this is how we were created, God's desire and God's design has never changed. God has always desired us to be. The fully formed, fully engaged humans living out our fullest degree of humanity, which means perfect, harmonious relationships with God, each other, ourselves, and creation. This is the ideal that Genesis 1 and 2 paints. But as every single person sitting in this room knows, this is not how you feel today. In fact, you are probably broken. And so I have in this box the same exact dinner plate, but broken. Genesis 3 comes along and what was once whole and perfect in its relationships in this good world and clean and clear from the sin joined a rebellion, a spiritual rebellion against God. And so we became broken. And over time, you know how life goes. Over time, you kind of find pieces of yourself and you try to like put them next to each other and you're like oh that doesn't quite fit i got a gap here i don't know what to do with that maybe if i pinch you, and oh, i got a gap on the other side but it's it's close it'll function it's functional it's not exactly what i was created to be but it's functional and you kind of hold those together and and maybe you find some other pieces oh this one's actually taped together i already taped these two and maybe you went You've got some counseling or something like that, and you've begun some healing process, which is good. But it's it's like it's still not what it was designed to be. You can still sense some brokenness there. But you're putting it together, and you're like, okay, I, I got three quarters. I got another section right here. Maybe if I if I put that one there. Oh, look, I got like half a plate. I'm working on it. But the truth is, it doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how much effort you put in. It doesn't matter how many good things you stack up you still feel the brokenness. Even if all the pieces came together in this circumference, there would still be cracks and chips and there would be gaps and it just wouldn't be what it was originally created to be, which was this, a holistic, clear, clean, non-chipped, non-cracked being in perfect harmony in its relationships with its creator, with each other, with itself, and with creation. This is God's design for humanity, and that's never changed. We joined the rebellion, and the sin that got introduced through that rebellion began to break us, to chip us, to crack us. And we try to piece ourselves together as best we can, but it, it is just not the same as what God has created us to be. You guys with me so far? Yes? Okay. Okay. So when Jesus says in Matthew 5:48, you be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, it's actually nothing new. Jesus is just calling us back to Genesis 1 and 2. Hey, this is what you were created to be. This is what you are. I still want you to be this. But the tension is, but Jesus, I can't be that because I'm already this. I am so broken and fractured. And man, I have sinned so much. I've got secret sins nobody knows about. I've worked so hard. Bro, I can never be what you're asking me to be. Do you feel that? And yet Jesus is asking us to be what we were created to be in the beginning. How can he ask that of us if he also understands that we're not that currently? Can you repair yourself? Can you mend the cracks? Can you somehow reform the plate to perfection? No. So how can Jesus ask that? So if you know the story, Genesis 3, we trusted a talking snake over our creator. We joined a rebellion against God. There were consequences to that sin that God warned Adam and Eve of. He said, look, if you do this, it means death. Like flat out, it means death. Adam and Eve rebelled. The story of Genesis 1 and 2 is is not them like, yeah, we hate you, God, we're going to rebel. Really what it was is the tree tree was a representative of, will you trust me to design and define what good and evil is in this world that I've made for you? You're going to want to define it for yourself. You're going to think you know more than I do. You're going to be tempted to believe that you can design this thing, but Will you trust me as the provider of all that is good? God's got a pretty good track record. Everything he's made so far is good, 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 good. He comes to Adam and Eve and he's like, will you trust me to keep providing good or will you try to reach out and define this thing for yourself? They decide to reach out and define it and design it themselves. It's what we've been doing ever since and that's why we're so broken you know the story, because God warned them, there would be consequences. There were. God spared them from death. He actually provided a way for them to live, but there was still consequences. What were the consequences? Adam and Eve got cursed, and we are still living under that curse right now. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 through, I think, 19 or so. Let's read these verses. God says this. I'm going to read them quick. To the woman. This is the woman's curse. Ladies in the room. I'm so sorry. Yeah, Yeah. Was that a mom who said that? Oh, Ginny Ann. I, okay, I thought it was a mom. Like, I know where this curse is, amen, brother. All right, here's what God says to women. I will multiply your pain and childbearing. Youch! As a father of three, I've been there, I've been in, the, I've been in the, the, the red zone, fourth and one, three times I've been in that delivery room. I've seen it up close. It's painful. Don't even go there. Don't even go there, it's right. It's painful. She's like, you don't know, dude. Oh, oh, I know, because my wife told me, okay? Don't call my wife a liar, okay? My wife told me. I needed some orange juice. It was a scary experience for me. (laughs) I almost fainted. Can you imagine what husbands have to endure? No, I'm just kidding. Okay, God says to women, He says, I'm gonna multiply your pain in childbearing. All right, I just wanna focus on that little bit of it. Part of you disobeying me, there's consequences. This is what I'm teaching my own children. It's a cause and effect world. If you disobey, there's consequences. If you disobey, there's consequences. It's just how the world works. You gotta learn that lesson young. Adam and Eve disobeyed, there's consequences. Eve's curse was bearing children, which is one of the most joyous events in all of life that you could ever imagine, will also be painful. What was Adam's curse? Let's go to Adam's curse real quick. Go to the next slide. To Adam he said, hey, because you listened to your wife and you ate the the fruit of the tree, go to the next verse. He said this, you're going to work the land. You're going to have to work the land, but I am cursing the ground because of you. When you work, oh man, thorns, thistles, It's going to produce so many things that you're going to have to sweat and toil and work through. Originally, you were just going to work this ground, and it was going to be so fruitful, and it was going to be blessed. But now, because you've disobeyed me, you will have long days with hard work, and you will work by the sweat of your brow. And the ground will not be as fruitful as it could have been. It will produce thorns and thistles. So women get cursed with pain and childbearing. Men get cursed with an unfruitful ground or an unfruitful work. Thorns and thistles the earth will produce. I know, I know. Men had it pretty hard. Um, hey hey, zing. Now listen, from here, from here, hang with me because I know that it's like, you guys are like, what does this have to do with Jesus' God and man? We're, we're talking snakes and childbearing and what, like where are we tonight? I get it, okay, remember, hey-oh, remember, we're connecting dots tonight. This is big picture view of the Bible. I'm hoping, you guys remember when you were a kid, you got a page with a bunch of dots on it, you start drawing in the lines, all of a sudden you're like, "Oh, oh, yeah, I got Gumby. How about that? All right, we're, we're trying to build a shape tonight. So we're a few places, but hopefully it'll connect. That's my hope. Now, from here on out, I'm under the uh, conviction That most modern Americans don't really know what to do with with maybe like this, this part of their Bible. You ever read the Bible and you just stick to the New Testament? You're like, dude, I ain't even touching that. I don't even know what the Old Testament is. That's, That's bizarre. They got talking donkeys and you got all sorts of weird, like incest and polygamy and murders, and like I don't even know what to do with that. I hear you. (laughs) I hear you. But listen, Genesis chapter 3, for the remainder of the Old Testament, this is a big picture of you, the rest of the Old Testament is essentially three things, all right? Write this down. Take this note. The rest of the Old Testament is essentially three things. God continues to seek relationships with his children. I know that seems kind of like a no-brainer. But he didn't have to, we rebelled. He spared us from the consequences. So the rest of the Old Testament, God is continuing to seek relationships with his children. That's bullet point number one. Bullet point number two is, in order to do that, God has to deal with our sin. Now, the consequences of sinning against God is death. But God, in his love and mercy, provides ways for us to continue to interact with him without dying. How does he do that in the Old Testament? Somebody sacrifices. If you've ever wondered, why is there so many animals dying in the Old Testament? Like just lambs, goats, bulls, doves. How are you going to kill a dove? Pow! Like everything... (laughs) everything in the Old Testament. Why? It's because our sin had consequences. What was the consequence of our sin? Death. Because God is seeking relationships with his children, he spared us from that death and provided a system that allowed us to substitute what would die. And so sacrifices became the substitute. When did this start? For the really clever ones. When did this start? Genesis, Genesis? In the Bible. Thank you. All right. So, you guys know the story. Moses leads his people out of Egypt. God starts to set up the law and sacrificial system. That's when it formally got started. But when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they realized, man, we are naked, that's kind of shameful, they made outfits for themselves out of leaves. God comes along and says, what are you doing? And clothes them in animal skins. Somebody killed an animal to clothe, to cover the shame of Adam and Eve's sin. And in Genesis, it seems to be God. Don't miss the significance of that. God is seeking relationships with his children all throughout the Old Testament because of our sin there's problems. Sin brings death, but because God wants relationships, he sets up a system where something can be the substitute to die, and it's animals. Now, look, I know I'm talking to a room full of people who probably have dogs and cats, and you're like, oh, the audacity. I, okay, I get it. But between people and animals, God desired the relationship with people and provided animals as a substitute, and seems to be in Genesis 3 is the first time an animal dies on behalf of people's sin. God clothed Adam and Eve with, with animal skins to cover their shame. And that theme repeats over and over through the Old Testament. So that's bullet point number two. God, God desires relationships with his people. He seeks relationships with the people. He provides sacrifices so that we can still have a relationship. The third bullet point to understand the Old Testament is everything in the Old Testament is pointing ahead to Jesus. It is really, really easy to read the Old Testament and be like, I am lost I am freaked out. I'm grossed out. And I think I need to tell my mom. Like I just read something spicy. Like I, I don't know, I don't know what's going on in this book. Get ready for that new dating series, y'all. W All right. Three bullet points of the old testament. God is seeking relationship with his people. God provides sacrifices to deal with our sin. And God, and the Bible is pointing ahead to Jesus. You say, how is it pointing ahead to Jesus, bro? How is it pointing ahead? All right, think about it. Not every single story is like, oh, Jesus is in between the lines. But the overarching Old Testament is pointing ahead to Jesus. We believe in Jesus in past tense. People in the Old Testament believed in Jesus in future tense. The one who is coming, Messiah, was what they called him. But everything's pointing ahead. Let's just, look, let, let's just think of a few examples In the early parts of Genesis, God continuing to pursue a relationship with his people sets up a a friendship with a man named Noah. Tells Noah, the world's about to end, bro. Deliver your people. Keep your family safe. And Noah builds this, this raft that in the midst of this can endure God's judgment. And all of those who found shelter in this ark remained immune from God's judgment. Pointing ahead to what? Jesus is our ark. And in the shelter of him, We find immunity towards God's judgment. God continues to set up relationships, one with a guy named Abraham. Eventually, Abraham has a son named Isaac. God says, hey, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac to me. He did this as a test. This is Genesis chapter 22. Hold on, bro. Genesis chapter 22. Abraham takes his son Isaac on a camping trip. Start walking up the mountain. And Isaac is carrying the bundle of sticks on his back that's going to be used to light the fire, to have the sacrifice. And eventually Abraham puts a son on the altar and has a knife above him and is about to plunge it when God intervenes and says, don't do it. Now I see that you were willing to do this. I'm providing a substitute for you. There is a ram over here. In other words, a lamb with his horns caught in a thicket of thorns. The sacrifice, Isaac... Went up the mountain, carrying the wood for his own sacrifice on his back. Pointing to what? Jesus carrying the wood on his back as he walks up the mountain to be the sacrifice. The ram with his head caught in a thicket of thorns points ahead to what? Jesus, our perfect lamb, crowned with thorns. Eventually, Moses... Goes to an evil ruler named Pharaoh and says, you got my people in captivity, I'm here to release them. And eventually leads them through the wilderness, pointing ahead to what? We are in spiritual captivity by an evil ruler behind the scenes of this world. And our leader, Jesus, brings us out of the slavery of sin. Eventually Moses dies and the new leader of Israel is named Joshua. And eventually Joshua is the one who brings them into the promised land, literally, is the one who crosses the border into the promised land, which was said to give Israel rest from their enemies. The Hebrew name for Joshua is the same as Jesus' name in Hebrew, it's Yeshua, Yeshua, They have the same name. Joshua is pointing ahead to our modern day Yeshua who is leading his people through the wilderness of this life and leading us literally to cross the border into the promised land which is figurative for modern day heaven which will give us eternal rest with Yeshua. Guys, I could go through... Old Testament story after story after story after story and show you how God has laid it out to point ahead. One is coming who's the fulfillment of these things. These are a shadow. These aren't substance, it's a shadow. One who is coming who is substance, it's physical. One who's coming who is better. One who is coming who really will deliver us. One who is coming, one who is coming. The entire Old Testament points ahead to Jesus. The entire Old Testament is about God pursuing relationships with his people, dealing with our sin through setting up a sacrificial system, and pointing ahead to the one who is coming, who will make all things right one day. So, Jesus as God and man. All right, now this is a little controversial. There's a lot of people who say Jesus isn't God, he was a good teacher. He was a good man. He, he taught some good things, to which I would argue, like, Jesus taught some wild things, bro. I, he, he, he taught some good things. I wouldn't put him in the category of, like, he's a good teacher. He, he left a lot of mystery. He was ambiguous. He was offensive. Like, a good teacher is someone who explains it, provides you application, helps you understand where to go with it. Jesus oftentimes just spoke in riddles, and people are like, uh, uh, I don't know. A lot of people will say, though, that Jesus isn't God. He never claimed to be God. Is that true? It's controversial. Because if you comb through the Gospels and you specifically are looking for the phrase, I am God, okay, (laughs) it's not there. But Jesus claimed to be God in other ways, in very clever ways. I just have three examples, two from the mouth of Jesus and one from a biblical author, New Testament author, who's looking back on Jesus. But I need to establish that Jesus really was God in the flesh. So let's just take a quick look at these three verses from the New Testament. Two out of the Gospel of John, one from the book of Hebrews. John chapter 14, Jesus says, he's talking to uh, the disciples here, Thomas and Philip. Jesus says, Have I been with you so long that you don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is talking to his disciples like, I've been with you three years. You still don't know who I am. If you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. That's a pretty strong claim if you're not God. Second statement, actually earlier earlier in the gospel, Jesus is going toe-to-toe with the religious leaders, and they're upset with him. And they're like, how can you say these things? You you don't even know. <laughs> you-, you don't even know us, man. And Jesus looks at them and says, Look, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus makes this claim that he knew Abraham, and they're like, How can you say that? And Jesus says, Before he was even alive, I am. Now, what is Jesus doing? He's not saying explicitly, I am God, but what is he doing? Exodus chapter 3, Moses at the burning bush. I'm going to go to Pharaoh. Who should I tell him sent me? God says, tell him my name. Yahweh, tell him I am has sent you. John chapter 8, G- Jesus claims to be I am, claims to be Yahweh. Without saying it, claims it. There are many other examples in the, in the Gospels. His title, Son of Man, is a reference to a prophecy out of Daniel chapter 7 about the Messiah. He, Jesus claims divinity without outright saying He's divine. Why? Because if He had said that, they would have locked Him up. He wouldn't have been able to accomplish His mission. He's doing this very clever tongue-in-cheek thing where He's saying it without saying it. How do the biblical authors reflect on Jesus? They see Him as God. Look at the author of Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago and in many ways... And many times God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. The author of Hebrews is reflecting on Jesus and saying, yo, Genesis chapter 1, that was Jesus. There's this exchange that happens all over the New Testament where God the Father and Jesus get exchanged as the authors reflect on the Old Testament. Hebrews says the world was created through Jesus author of Hebrews says Jesus is the final prophet. God spoke to us many ways through prophets, but in these last days it's through his Son. This isn't just a servant of God, it's the Son of God. It's not a prophet, it's the prophet. There's no other. This is the creator of all things. So the New Testament establishes Jesus as God. And it's important to understand. It also establishes him as human. I want to look at this one passage again out of the book of Hebrews. Then we're going to start connecting these dots. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 says this Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, pointing to the humanity of Jesus. Jesus has been tempted. We don't have a high priest that can't relate to us. Jesus knows what it's like to be human. Why? Because he was fully human. Let us then draw with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Jesus was human and Jesus was God. Why does that matter? How does that affect you? It matters because Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, looks at his followers. And if he were standing in here tonight, he would look at us and say, Hey, you, if you really want to know what it's like to come after me, to follow me, to surrender to me, the ways of the kingdom, I need you to be perfect as God is perfect. His message wouldn't change. The way that you were created to be in Genesis chapter 1, that's what I need you to be. The expectation has never changed. I need you to be this. Now, if God were to ask us this, which he does, but if he were to ask us this, Most of us, being self-aware enough, would come to God and say, but God, but God, look at my pitiful state. How can you ask me to be this perfectly put together thing when, when obviously I'm broken? I've inherited a curse from birth. I've been messed up. That's so unfair. You don't know what it's like to be me, God. Jesus says, no, I do because I am one of you. We can't play the card of like, you don't know what it's like to be human. You don't know how hard this thing is. Jesus says, no, I do. But we can't also look at Jesus and be like, bro, you can't expect us to be perfect. Who do you think you are, God? Because Jesus would say, yeah. <laughs> That's kind of the whole thing. Jesus is calling us back to our original created state. I want you to be in perfect harmony in your relationship with the Father, with yourself, with others, and with creation. Our knee-jerk reaction is to be like, that's impossible. Look at me, bro. How can you ask me like that? Jesus says, I can ask you because I am one of you. I lived the human life. I did it for 33 years before I was murdered, our response might be like, yeah, but you don't know what it's like. Bro, you, you were never tempted like me. Jesus would say, I was tempted in every way as you are. You struggling tonight? <clears throat> you struggling with anxiety? Crippling fear of what ifs and turning those into what is in your mind and carrying tomorrow's burden with today's strength and feeling so exhausted like you got nothing left? I think Jesus would come along and say, I've been tempted with that. I know what that feels like. you in here tonight and you struggle with lust? To look at someone and fantasize about them? Imagine things? It's hard for us to imagine Jesus being tempted with that. The scriptures are clear. He was tempted in every way as we are. I think Jesus would look at you and be like, it's hard. Especially at your age. Especially if, with how sexualized the culture is. I get it. I know what that feels like. You come to Jesus and you're like, dude, I, I'm, I just feel lost. I get that. I don't feel like I have a purpose. Oof, I remember when I felt that way. Man, I, f- I feel like I don't even know who I am. I'm struggling with my identity. Oh, man, I can tell you about a time where I was tempted with that. Jesus, I feel rejected. Yeah, I've been there. I feel lonely. Yeah. I feel like my friends, I don't even have any. I get that. I feel like no one wants me. Oof, that's tough, been there. Anything that humanity can offer, Jesus, the God-man, is able to come to us and say, I know, and I get it. And brother Jesus throws his arm around us and says, I know how that feels, and I'm so sorry. You might say, Jesus, you don't know how it feels because you never sinned, but you were perfect. You got it backwards. If we're running a marathon, we gave up around mile two or three. Jesus is the only one who knows what those final miles feel like. He's the only one who's endured temptation to the point of never giving in. We get crushed with it. In the New Testament, about nine times, the word compassion is used. Compassion means the ability to suffer with someone, and it's used exclusively to describe Jesus when he looks at us. He has compassion on us. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he is a human. But he also has the authority to say, this is what you were created to be, and this is what I still want you to be, because he's also God. Now, if you understand this to mean that Jesus is telling you, all right, dig in your box, let's put the pieces together, try harder, read your Bible more, obey, wake up earlier and pray. Come on, be perfect. If you understand Matthew 5, 48 to mean effort, earning, try harder, then you don't understand the gospel. Look at this next verse, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 Paul's reflecting on Jesus and he says this it is for our sake that God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so what's the old testament about God pursues a relationship with his people God provides sacrificial systems so that our sin can be dealt with and everything is pointing ahead to Jesus. Paul's reflecting on this and he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God, the Father, for our sake, made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what that means. This is the gospel in a nutshell. We're connecting dots, big picture view. That Jesus came and lived a human life, divine, inhuman, God in the flesh. That's why we call it incarnate. The word incarnate means in the flesh. You ever go to Taco Bell and you order quesadilla, carne quesadillas? You're ordering meat quesadillas? It's, It's God in the meat, God in the flesh. That's where we get that word. He's incarnate. It's just a little side fact for you there. Some of you guys will remember nothing except that I referenced Taco Bell tonight. Divine in the flesh, Jesus lived a perfect life. This is what we were created to be. This is what our humanity was always meant to be. Jesus lived it. Our current state of affairs is this brokenness, shattered plates. We are so messed up. We've got a curse. It's never going to be whole. If you understand the gospel to be, you got to work harder, try harder, earn this, do better so that God will approve of you. You don't understand the gift and grace that is the gospel. Jesus lived a perfect human life. So that, so that the perfection achieved in him, the wholeness achieved in him, this right here, could now be brought in front of us and given to us. On the cross, hear me, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he were this. After the cross, God treats us as if we are this. Because of anything you've done? No. Because of everything that Jesus has done. That's what this verse is talking about. God made him to be sin. It's not just that Jesus took our sin on the cross. It's that when God viewed Jesus on the cross, he looked at him and treated him as if he were this. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. God literally took our brokenness Applied it to Jesus, treated him accordingly, took his righteousness, applied it to us, and treats us accordingly. When Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect, he's not saying try harder. What he's saying is believe in me, because I make you this. My righteousness, given to you. Your sinfulness, given to me. He's not saying try harder, earn more, do better, wake up earlier. You got it, man, just... Jesus is saying, In me, I make you this. God sees you as this. Very famous author named John Bunyan wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. Very famous book. He wrote another book, though, called Grace Abounding. And I want to quote that book. And that book, He's he's talking as if he's talking on behalf of God, and in that book he says, Sinner, you think because of your sins and infirmities, I cannot look upon you. But behold, my son is by my side, and upon him I look, and I will deal with you as I'm pleased in him. That God gives us the wholeness and righteousness of Christ The life he lived is now applied to us, and the life we lived was applied to Jesus on the cross. Why? Because the entire Old Testament is leaving these breadcrumbs for us to put the story together. God desires a relationship with his people. God provides a sacrificial system, and it's all pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the final sacrifice, once and for all, fully efficacious, fully efficient for all time, never needs to be repeated. Why? Because the sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice in the Old Testament could never take away our sin, it could only deal with our sin. In order for it to finally take away our sin, what we needed was someone who could conquer death itself. Jesus conquered death after three days in the tomb, rose again, boom, death is defeated. We needed someone who could undo, amen to that one clap, thank you, quiet church is a dead church, someone's alive in here tonight. We needed someone who could undo the effects of sin. Only someone perfect can undo the effects of sin. Jesus was perfect. What was the curse given to Eve? Some of you guys are still like, why did we start in Genesis? What was the curse given to Eve? Pain and childbearing. Of all the ways God could have come into this world on his rescue mission, how did he come? Through the pain of childbearing. What was the curse given to Adam? The ground will produce thorns and thistles. What was Jesus crowned with on the cross? Thorns. The images of the curse are applied to Jesus' bookends of life. I come through one curse, I'll finish with another curse. I will undo sin itself because I'm perfect. I will conquer death itself because the grave cannot hold me. Adam and Eve. Amen. Adam and Eve reached for a tree in their rebellion against God. I will hang on a tree to reconcile you to God. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing ahead. Leviticus 16, there's this special day called Day of Atonement. And on that day, Israel had to kill two spotless lambs. And they would pray the sins of the people over these lambs. And one lamb they would kill right in front of everyone else, and the other lamb they would send off into the wilderness. And this was symbolic that the blood of this lamb has covered our sins, and this lamb has taken away our sins. When Jesus arrives on the scene, his cousin John the Baptist points to him and says, behold, the lamb of God. He is the perfect, spotless lamb who covers our sins and takes away our sins. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, pointing ahead to the ultimate sacrifice. But it could only hold, it could only take root if, 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 it not just dealt with our flesh, but dealt with our souls. And in order to do that, no matter how many sacrifices were given in the Old Testament, in order to deal with our flesh and our soul, you need divine and human. Jesus is the only time in history the offering was the offerer. The sacrifice was the sacrificer. Because He's God and human. We don't ever have to sacrifice again, because Jesus' sacrifice can never be undone, can never be trumped. Jesus had to conquer death, undo the effects of sin, and then bridge the gap between divide and, bridge the divide between human and God. And he is, he did, because he is God and human. He's the God-man. He's a perfect representation to God on behalf of men because he understands our plight and our weakness and our struggle in this life. And he's the perfect representation to men on behalf of God because he is God and he is holy and he is divine. He is the bridge that reconciles us back to God. And he doesn't say be perfect as in try harder, you sinners. He says be perfect as in I give my perfection to you, now receive it. The entire Old Testament has been fulfilled in me. Now receive it as your identity. That's how Jesus can ask us to be perfect. It's not about your effort. It's about our receiving of his effort. Last thought I want to leave you with is this. This is the takeaway. This is the bottom line. Jesus, as human, feels our pain in the room tonight and you're in pain. Jesus knows that pain. He experienced loss, death of loved ones, death of friends, rejection, betrayal, loneliness, identity crisis, temptation. Everything under the sun Jesus experienced as a human and he's able to relate to you because he feels your pain. He knows what you're going through, bro. He knows what you're going through, sis. He knows because he is human. Jesus as human feels your pain. Jesus as God heals your sin. This isn't just an animal sacrifice that you have to keep killing and keep killing and keep killing all through the Old Testament because its effects are only temporary. Jesus gave his life as the sacrifice to finally, once and for all, undo the curse of sin. We are healed. We are made whole. We are made perfect through Jesus You want to know what Jesus as human and Jesus as God has to do with you in 2023 living a teenage life? Everything if you understand that Jesus understands your plight and your struggles and Jesus actually heals your soul and forgives your sin. How does he have the authority to do that? Because he's the God man. He's both In. Would you receive that truth tonight? Would you come to Jesus with your struggles and your pain and say, I need your help. I've never talked to you about this, but, but you get it. You get what I'm going through. Come to him as a human and come to him as God and confess your sin. Jesus is the God man. Would you approach him like that tonight and from here on out in your life? Let's pray. Jesus... Uh, Scriptures say that you are our brother. You know what it's like to be a human. You know what it's like to be one of us. To feel tired, upset, angry, lonely, scared, hurt, sad, heartbroken, rejected, fearful, confused, lied to, betrayed, tempted. You know what we go through. And you are our brother, and you are right there with compassion, ready to throw an arm around us and say, I got you. I get it. But you're also our God, and you make us whole, and you make us holy, and, and, and <laughs> our shattered plates. You, you make a whole again. You give us what you accomplished, and you took our pitiful life. You swapped with us, even though we, we didn't deserve it, and we can't thank you enough for that. So, Jesus, I pray that every single person in this room tonight would accept their position before a holy God, that they've been made perfect in the eyes of God because he deals with us as he looks upon you. And I pray that every person in this room tonight would find a friend. Maybe they've never thought of you as a friend who gets them, who understands what they're going through. I pray they would tonight. I pray they'd come to you as a friend and pour their heart out, knowing that you understand every nook and cranny of the human experience. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming one of us and for helping us be reconciled to you. Thank you for restoring the relationship between humanity and God. Thank you for being our sacrifice forever, for giving us your righteousness and making us holy, for fulfilling the Old Testament and what we could never do and and just giving that to us as a gift. We thank you. Thank you for becoming one of us and helping us see that We indeed have a friend and a brother in you who understands us. Let us pour our hearts out to you, Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen.